A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 15. The Goblin's Revenge. Early next morning, before the other two were awake, Harry left the tent to search the woods around them for the oldest, most gnarled and resilient-looking tree he could find. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We want to start off, of course, with gratitude to our amazing patrons, Maj Jensen, Christina McGee, Megan McMahon, Elena Eckerly, and Allie Underwood. And a big shout out to the DC Ministry of Magic, our local group in our nation's capital, Washington, DC, run by Emil Snyder and Ren Lemler. If you want to join them in DC or any of our local groups, head on to harrypottersacredtext.com and find out more. We're so, so proud of all of you running your local groups digitally right now. And we know it's just so important to stay connected. Vanessa, we have come to a really important chapter, and we're reading it through the theme of ownership, so I'm excited to hear your story. I am someone who gets frustrated easily, and frustration is the most reliable way to make me cry. Like, nothing will make me cry faster than if I drop a pencil 
and I can't find it. I'll be like, I know it's supposed to be here. It should be right here. There's no black hole right here. Where can it be? Like that will be the thing that makes me cry. And the first thing that I remember getting that frustrated about that it made me cry was in the first grade, somebody moved to my first grade class from Alaska. And I looked at a map and I was like, oh, Alaska, he's from Canada. And my mom was like, no, sweetie, he's from the United States. Alaska's in the United States. And I was like, uh, that makes no sense. Look at the map. It's attached <laughs> to Canada. And she was like, yes, but we own Alaska. And I was like, who? Like, all Americans own Alaska? And she was like, no, the government owns Alaska. And I was like, so Ronald Reagan owns Alaska? And she was like, no, like, the government owns Alaska. This conversation went on every morning while she was doing my hair for weeks. I every morning would be like, okay, try again. Explain <laughs> to me why Alaska is attached to Canada, but America owns it. And every single morning, our morning hair sessions would end with me running off, screaming and crying in frustration, being like, ah, it just doesn't make any sense, and running <laughs> away in tears. I'm not sure how my mom got me off of this topic because this was 32 years ago. I am now 38 years old and I still don't totally understand like land ownership and colonialism on a legal level. I would like to say that now that I'm not in the first grade, I would not use the language of the United States owns Alaska. I understand that it's a complex relationship of governance. But what was obviously missing from my mom's explanation, although I don't think it was inappropriately missing at the time because I was six years old, was a conversation about power that, you know, the government didn't own Alaska the way that I owned my teddy bear, right? Like we couldn't pick it up and hold it and touch it, but that we had a certain amount of power over it. And I think that that is the kind of ownership that shows up again and again in this chapter. In fact, the kids, to a large extent, are only traveling with borrowed items. They have the tent, which is borrowed. There's going to be a lot of conversation in the rest of the books as to which wands belong to whom. We have this portrait of Phineas Nigellus, which Phineas Nigellus feels has been stolen, but Harry technically owns it legally because he inherited Grimald Place. But I think that the central tension of this chapter, which, you know, is the chapter in which Ron leaves, is that Hermione and Harry feel an ownership of this mission and Ron does not. Mm. And so I'm excited to talk to you about what it means to physically own something, what it means to have ownership over your own body, over an idea, over a mission. As I get older, I obviously have a lot more sympathy for my mother because ownership is a really complicated idea. Oh, that's so juicy, Vanessa. Also because the whole Alaska analogy is so complicated because, of course, Alaska is part of the United States and therefore is part of the government in terms of its representatives and, you know, all of the 
taxpayer money. And so just that idea of ownership being complicated is so multi-layered. I love that as a way into this story because ownership is really diffused. You know, I remember wanting to choose this theme of ownership in part because of the complicated relationships between, you know, the wizarding world and the goblin world. And we see that particularly embodied in this question of Gryffindor's sword, which shows up in this chapter. But let's remind everyone what happens in this chapter, because honestly, I started reading it and I was like, Oh, oh, this is the chapter where it happens. I completely forgot that this is the moment. This is the chapter where everything happens. So much (laughs) happens. All right. Put 30 seconds on the clock because you're going first. Okay. Count me in. Three, two, one. Recap. So they are in the forest in the tent and then they hear these noises and they put out extendable ears and it turns out that it's like... Dean and Tonks's dad and a couple of goblins and all these people and they're talking and it turns out that Ginny got um, tried to steal this sort of Gryffindor and then they're really excited because they learn a lot from Phineas Nigellus and they're like oh we can use this sort of Gryffindor in order to get the the Horcruxes and then Ron is like oh you remember that I exist and Ron storms off and Hermione cries. And Harry, I totally forgot this detail. Harry takes the blankets off of Ron's bed, throws them over Hermione as if she's like a bird making noise at night and just goes to bed. He's like, here, act of care. Done. Bye. Brutal, Harry. Okay, are you ready to also offer a recap? I'll dive in. Yes, let's do it. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So Harry is really struggling while everyone's struggling because they figure out that the locket makes you depressed and sad. Um, So they start to rotate it like a really bad pass the parcel. Um, And then Harry keeps seeing like Voldemort's uh, visions of this kind of laughing face of the person who stole the wand from Grindelwald. Not from Grindelwald, from Gregarvich. And then um, he goes to a market town and he wants to get food, but then there's Dementors and he can't can't cast his Patronus and it's very stressful. And then all the things that you talk about happened. And then Ron disapparates and Hermione is absolutely heartbroken and Harry's like, fine. Um, that was such good teamwork. You just yeah. made sure to do all the things that I missed. I love you. So Vanessa, I want to start with one of these physical objects that we've talked about, which is the sword of Gryffindor. We learn about this incredible, like high risk action that's taken by what I want to call like the mirror trio of Ginny, Neville and Luna, that they break into Snape's office. They take the sword, but they're caught on their on their escape. And Snape, after talking about it with Voldemort, sends it to Gringotts. But we learn from the goblins that it's actually a fake and that Dumbledore has probably hidden it somewhere after trying to open the ring. He's destroyed the, the previous Horcrux. And it it opens up all of these questions about ownership because, of course, it's stored in the headmaster's office or Snape thinks it's the real thing. And so, you know, Phineas Nigellus tells us, well, it belongs to the school. It doesn't belong, you know, it's not owned by Snape, but, but it's owned by the school. The three kids who steal it feel like it belongs to Gryffindor House and to the mission and maybe to Dumbledore in some way. And the goblins who are telling the story or, or a part of the group kind of recounting the story are laughing the whole way through. I mean, they even use a different language at first to joke about it because they see it as theirs. Like they don't accept the idea of wizard ownership over goblin materials. And so there's this whole kind of separate system of ownership, which invalidates what we think of as, you know, everyday law. So I don't know the answer to the question of who owns the sword, let alone where is it? And I wonder if Ginny. 
knows that it got left to Harry because Harry is also a contender Ooh. for who owns this sword. And I, I do love thinking about this sword sort of as like the Arthurian legend of the sword and the stone, that the sword belongs to the person who like has the use for it, that it's like communal property. And right now, it simultaneously, what we know is going to be true is that it belongs somewhere between Snape and Harry. Snape is going to bring it to Harry. And so like Snape is the actual real steward of it in this moment. And Harry is going to become that steward. And then again, it's going to be this ongoing negotiation between Griphook and Harry, right? Mm -hmm. I will say that not to talk poorly of your home country, my love, but <laughs> the first time that I felt like I understood colonialism was in walking into the British Museum and Seriously. being like, oh, my God, it's Greece, but it's here, <laughs> which sent me down a spiral of like the British government historically saying we would take better care of it. And then I'm like, but that's a cultural idea of what taking care of a place means, right, or what taking care of an artifact means. And so I think that like this sword, we see these types of arguments happening in the non-wizarding world, in the muggle world all the time. A hundred percent. And after your, you know, three or four rooms of Greece, then there's 800 rooms of Egypt and, and, it, right. and it just continues. And I think you just hit on something that's really interesting, which is like, what are the stories we tell around ownership that kind of legitimizes that stealing and and that then holding on to something? Because that's rife in the kind of cultural sphere of museums and education. And so you know, how does that play out here? Because I feel like the goblins are basically saying, listen, we know it belongs to us. You don't fully understand its properties. You can play around with it, but anytime we want it back, we can get it. But that's kind of invalidated by what we see later in the book, as you said, between this kind of scuffle between Harry and Griphook. So do you think the goblins still have control of it or do, or do they think they, that something has been stolen? So the things that this sword argument are making me think of in our world are the items that are too complicated to be owned. Yes. Like land. The American government obviously believes that they own the right to Mount Rushmore. Certainly Donald Trump believes that. Whereas we know that tribes native to that area believe that Mount Rushmore is on sacred land and that Mount Rushmore is an invasion, right? It's an invasive species to that land that it is not like rightfully owned by the government of the United States and therefore it is an abomination. And I think that we see a similar thing happening with this sword. And I just think that there are things in which ownership is the language that gets imposed upon mm. because of capitalism and white supremacy and the patriarchy. But ownership is the wrong language. The conversation should be about stewardship. Like, I wonder if what should be happening here is that, like, Hogwarts and some goblin representative should, like, be on a committee together. You know, I don't know what the solution is, but I know that this is too complicated than the word ownership allows. Mm. And yet that's the word that we have. And so that is what the argument is in the books. I'm so compelled by this idea that ownership is just completely the wrong frame. And I'm thinking about how within a kind of a slavery context, there's an idea that one person can own another person and that we see that to be wrong. And perhaps the same thing is true, right? Like, how can you own land? How is that something that can be owned? And it's making me think, like, we've talked about the goblins, we've talked about Hogwarts, we've talked about Harry, but like, maybe the sword 
is its own owner, right? Like maybe it cannot be owned. And in some ways, the text tells us that that might be true because it shows up when it's needed. And guess who gets to decide when it's needed? The sword. You know, even the goblins don't have a right to claim, well, we made it, so therefore we own it. Like a parent couldn't say that about a child. And so maybe the sword is its own owner. I kind of like that reading. Yeah, you know, which brings me to another place in the text, which is Mad-Eye's eye. Yeah, that's where we open that Harry goes and buries this eye, which is such an intense move. Yeah, it's very intense. And also it shows different ideas of ownership. Umbridge thought the eye was something to be owned. She had it and she was using it as a tool of spying. Whereas Harry does not see it as something to be owned. He sees it as a part of Mad-Eye's body and that it therefore deserves to be buried. And he wasn't able to bury Mad-Eye's body, right? They couldn't find Mad-Eye's body. And it seems to be true that the Death Eaters found the body because Umbridge got the eye. And so this is Harry's opportunity to have a memorial for Mad-Eye and find a tree that he thinks looks like Mad-Eye and honor Mm. Mad-Eye. And so, again, we're just seeing two people with the same object, Umbridge and Harry, having very different ideas about their relationship to that object. And I mean, like, on different planes. Umbridge is like, I own this. And Harry's like, we don't own someone's body. This is part of his body. And so offers a memorial. And it's right in the moment when Harry could use this eye most, right? Like, they're I know. literally on the run. I'm sure Mad-Eye would be like, dude, use the eye. Like, I'm already dead. Constant vigilance, right? Like, the, I think he'd be the first to say, please use it. But the other thing that it, it connected to for me is that Harry does this thing alone. It looked to me like he feels like he owns this grief in a way that Hermione and Ron don't, which kind of even foreshadows that piece that you talked about in terms of who owns this mission and that Ron feels like it doesn't belong to him. And so again, this constant tension of like, is Harry on his own? Is Harry with Ron and Hermione? It's even in this chapter as he goes and buries that eye on his own before the others have woken up. I love that question of who owns this grief. And I think that it is a question that I would imagine so many of our listeners have felt, right? When someone Mm -hmm. dies and it's, you know, one person's husband and one person's father, there's often this sense of like, who has more of a right to fall apart and who's going to take care of whom? And we don't know what to do when grief is shared in simultaneous. And I do think that there's this natural instinct in us of, the grief is mine, right? Like I'm Mm -hmm. the sad one. I knew him best that there's almost a competitive zero sum mindset around even complicated things like grief that I think is totally natural and understandable and comes from a place of love and loss. But I also think to your point, so much of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, If Harry was like, oh, I have the instinct to go bury Mad-Eye's eye alone and I don't want Hermione and Ron to come with me, but it's probably the right thing to do. Or he could be like, oh, shoot, I'm Jewish. And in Judaism, you need 10 (laughs) people, a minion to bury anything. And the closest I'm going to get is three. (laughs) Right. Like there are spiritual technologies that are in place in order to do these things. But instead he goes alone. And I I think that, you know, we see this mirrored later with Dobby's burial, which is something he wants to do alone. 
but Luna leads the way for it to not be alone and it ends up being so much more meaningful. And so I think that the invitation that I'm feeling here is that even if you want to do certain things alone, you should invite others because what you're really inviting is the chance that they might surprise you and the chance Mm. that community will mean more to you. Whenever you feel as though you own something, ask yourself, do I really? And that stood out to me later in the text. Once the fight has happened between Ron and Harry, And the text tells us Ron had broken something between them. And it felt like, oh, here's something that no one owns on their own, right? The experience of friendship or a relationship is always owned by multiple people. And you can't just have one person try to carry the whole thing all the time because it it just will not work. And so I love expanding that kind of frame onto all sorts of other things that there's much more co-ownership, right? Whether it's grief, whether it's friendship, whether it's a, you know, an all-seeing eye. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. 
Well, should we talk about the big fight? Uh, it's too emotional. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really got me. I felt like maybe because of this moment that the chapter starts with, with the burying of the eye and Ron being excluded in that way. I really felt for him this time. And he ends up being super frustrating. But yeah, we should we should dig into it. Who who owns responsibility for the split up? Oh, I mean, it's such a good question. I do think that the chapter is making an argument. The chapter is saying Ron has never been hungry before. The chapter warns us that the combination of Ron being hungry and wearing the locket is a really bad combination and that he tends to feel a little bit better after he takes the locket off. I think that there are a lot of things at play as to why this fight happens the way that it does. The thing that struck me this time is the way that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy for Ron. Like Harry and Hermione for pages and pages are only looking at each other. But like Ron isn't interjecting anything. When Ron gets involved, he's like sitting in the dark on a bed pouting. And he knows that the locket makes him feel bad. He could take off the locket. But the moment that's most interesting to me is when Hermione is like, Ron, take off the locket. And Harry says, no, don't give him an excuse. And Mm. that to me is Harry's culpability. He wants this fight. He doesn't want Ron to be more of an ally than Harry suspects. Oh, that's really convincing. And I also want to point just to a place where I feel like Hermione contributes to this dynamic in which, you know, as an organizer, one of the hardest things to learn, and I feel like I still haven't learned it, is don't do anything for someone else that they can do for themselves. Because you build in a dependency and a disempowering experience, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy, just like you were saying. And we see that Ron never contributes an idea of where to go next. And fair enough, like he hasn't traveled in the muggle world, maybe as Harry and Hermione have, but nor is he ever asked to come up with a specific plan for one place. I feel like he could definitely do that. And so sometimes when we try and solve everyone's problems or even our own and our group's problems, we don't make space for other people's solutions. And I I feel like Hermione contributes a little bit in that way to the point where Ron feels, just like you'd said, that he doesn't have any ownership in the journey, right? That he is not needed. That why is he even here? Like he's miserable. He's worried about his family and he's not even contributing. They're probably better off without me. Now he doesn't say you're better off without me, but I have to feel that that's part of what he's experiencing. Yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing here is toxic masculinity, Mm. right? Like, and we've seen this previously where, like, rather than inviting Hermione to the Yule Ball, rather than saying, I like you, he's, like, mean to her about Mm -hmm. crumb, right? Like, we've seen Ron act out of a sense of machismo before, and to me... The moment that made me realize that, like, his manhood was at stake is when he says the giant spiders. So Harry is like, Ginny is fine. Like, she probably didn't even go into the Forbidden Fort. She probably just hung out with Hagrid. And Ron says, oh, Harry Potter, who's been through worse. But, like, there are giant spiders in there. And I think that Ron is embarrassed that Harry goes into the Forbidden Forest and isn't scared. And he goes into the Forbidden Forest and is terrified. And I think that part of what's at stake there is a sense of his manhood of, like, you wouldn't be scared to go into the Forbidden Forest, but I would be. And so I think that 
This is also about the ways that systems of oppression like the patriarchy own us. Yeah, I mean, his experience with Aragog is one where we see Ron really at his most terrified. The thing that really struck me is that we have this complete breakdown after we have a moment of breakthrough, right? They have been traveling for weeks and weeks and weeks and nothing is changing. And here they get this new piece of information, right? The sword can destroy Horcruxes. Oh my God, we have to find the sword. And Harry and Hermione are like, great, we've got a new clarity of focus, right? Let's start thinking about where their sword is. And for Ron, it's just another way in which he doesn't know something. He's like, oh, it's another thing that we don't know where it is and we don't know where to find it. And it feels like it's another way in which he feels more useless. And so that there was a sense of like, if it had been a different kind of challenge and I don't know what, you know, eat your way through this mountain of food, Ron would have been like, yes, I'm ready to help. But because it's the same kind of thing that he's already failed in once and now he's going to have to fail in something else again, that felt like, you know, just another way in which someone who feels like they should know how to do things is kind of emasculated or, or, or I mean, literally the word humiliated is in this chapter. I also think that like, to some extent, as much as this is a fight, they don't actually talk about the conflict at the heart of what's going mm. on. Ron never says, I want to go. Harry says, just go then. And Hermione is like, Ron, take off the locket, take off the locket. And then they're about to attack each other and Hermione stops them. And so I actually wonder if by taking care of them in this moment, she doesn't allow the sort of like pressure valve to release. Mm. They need to have a version of this fight. They need to talk about the fact that there was somehow a misunderstanding and Harry resents the misunderstanding. He feels as though he was very clear about what he knew and what he didn't know. And Ron feels misled and like some real conversations need to happen here. And everyone needs to own their feelings and own the fact that they're mad at each other. And I think that they're is such a reluctance to own up to their anger and resentment and mixed feelings that, you know, Ron has no choice but to leave. I'm suddenly seeing this image of what if they had created a, like, protection shield around the three of them, right, that would, like, hold the conflict, <laughs> you know, so they yeah. could really scream at each other, but knowing that no one would leave and so then there's a kind of a safety in having the fight. But, you know, by creating that safety boundary, it, it creates the division in such a stark way that maybe Ron feels like, well, the only thing I can do now to end this fight is to leave. I mean, it's not even to end the fight. Harry kicked him out. Yeah. Harry yeah. says, go, just go then. And it would require, I think, like certainly more wisdom and maturity than I have to have somebody say to me twice, just go and not leave. That is a really hard thing to stay in the face of. Right. Or just to like leave and just walk around the tent and count to a hundred and then come back and be like, right. I love you. I'm sorry. Can we figure it out? Yeah. Right. Like that is a lot to ask of a 17 year old. <laughs> Who's on the run and hungry and wearing a Horcrux. Yeah, right. no, I'm totally with you. I mean, the, f the final thing I'll say for Ron is that it's so interesting how the traditional roles in the story are reversed in this moment, right? Usually Harry's the one who's on his own. Harry feels like misunderstood. Harry is thrown out of places. And the way in which Ron is now experiencing that sense of, of, of a deep aloneness 
I guess, you know, he still has that sense he, he can go home to his parents, but still there's a real switching of roles in a way here that just feels like a new experience for Ron. And I think it's one of the reasons why he feels such empathy once he's left that makes him want to come back, that he's like, oh, I want to make sure that Harry never has to feel like that again. And I, I want to come back, even though I don't have any new ideas, even though I don't know where we should go camping, right? It's, it's happenstance that he rescues Harry. It's not like he has some big plan. Is there a final place you want to point us to, Vanessa, in the chapter? There is. And that is the two goblins speaking gobbledygook to each other. And yes. then the, the lovely reveal that one of the wizards at least understands gobbledygook. It reminds me of all of the stories in my life where, and I'm sure you have stories like this too, where like my family will be speaking in Hebrew and Hungarian about somebody who's in the room, assuming that we have ownership of that obscure language in a non-native space, right? Like nobody in LA is going to speak Hungarian. And so like we'll speak Hungarian to each other and then it'll turn out that somebody nearby understands. And I, I just really saw that with these goblins, right? They feel as though they own a private space between the two of them and that they own their language and then a human wizard can understand them. And they they seem to already know that. They don't seem to be upset by it, but it's just so funny the way that I'm always worried Peter and the kids speak to each other in German in public. And I'm like, you are going to get called out one day. <laughs> it's also nice to have this unknown figure of Dirk who, you know, we, we know works in the goblin liaison office, be this kind of bridging figure between the two goblins and the two wizards who are on the run. And that in some way, you know, this multi-species group represents the very thing that Voldemort is against. I just love having that kind of transition figure within this group as they're, as they're on the run. They're kind of like a, a vision of the world that could be with someone like Dirk crossing, crossing these two worlds and, and helping them collaborate and be peaceful. Vanessa, we are turning to a new spiritual practice and it's sacred imagination. And I've chosen a, a relatively short passage. It's just one page from about the middle of this chapter, The Goblin's Revenge. And so just as a reminder, with sacred imagination, we're really trying to lean into our sensual experience. What can we smell and touch and taste and see and hear as we listen to this passage? So if it's safe to do so, I invite you to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and just settle in and see who you are and what you notice in this passage. We're with the trio and they're in the tent and they're suddenly hearing noises outside. Heavy scuffing and scraping noises, plus the sound of dislodged stones and twigs, told them that several people were clambering down the steep, wooded slope that descended to the narrow bank where they had pitched the tent. They drew their wands, waiting. The enchantments they had cast around themselves ought to be sufficient in the near-total darkness to shield them from the notice of muggles and normal witches and wizards. If these were Death Eaters, then perhaps their defences were about to be tested by dark magic for the first time. The voices became louder, but no more intelligible as the group of men reached the bank. Harry estimated that their owners were less than 20 feet away, but the cascading river made it impossible to tell for sure. 
Hermione snatched up the beaded bag and started to rummage. After a moment, she drew out three extendable ears and threw one each to Harry and Ron, who hastily inserted the ends of the flesh-coloured strings into their ears and fed the other ends out of the tent entrance. Within seconds, Harry heard a weary male voice. There ought to be a few salmon in here, or do you reckon it's too early in the season? Accio salmon! There were several distinct splashes and the slapping sounds of fish against flesh. Somebody grunted appreciatively. Harry pressed the extendable ear deeper into his own. Over the murmur of the river, he could make out more voices, but they were not speaking English or any human language he had ever heard. It was a rough and unmelodious tongue, a string of rattling, guttural noises, and there seemed to be two speakers, one with a slightly lower, slower voice than the other. A fire danced to life on the other side of the canvas. Large shadows passed between tent and flames. The delicious smell of baking salmon wafted tantalizingly in their direction. Then came the clinking of cutlery on plates, and the first man spoke again. Here, Griphook Gornock. Goblins! Hermione mouthed at Harry, who nodded. What did you discover, Vanessa? Who were you, first of all, in this scene? So I was Hermione and I was horrified, just like Mm. so, so scared. And like I was fumbling for the extendable ears. I was like, oh, my God, I picked this location and we're going to get caught. And my mind was racing with potential solutions. I'm like packing the tent in my mind while I'm reaching for the extendable ears And then I hear the goblins and it's just such relief. It's like, oh my God, okay, it's not Death Eaters. But like, it was just panic was my overwhelming feeling. And the other thing that I felt was for the first couple of sentences, a little bit of hope of like, maybe it's a deer, maybe it's an animal, right? Like trying to make it okay and then realizing, nope, we might be dying. Oh my gosh, that's so, it's so intense. I I was Harry and the moment where I really joined you in that feeling of maybe not so much fear, but like readiness for me was the moment where they pull out their wands. That's when it's going to be a confrontation. And in some ways I feel like for Harry, action is where he thinks most clearly. And for Hermione, less so, right? We know that Defense Against the Dark Arts is not her fave. And so for Harry, there was something that was kind of exciting that like, oh, finally something's happening. But the other thing that felt very strong throughout this passage was this gushing of the water. And I wondered why did they choose to be right next to this huge river? Like it kind of, I guess, maybe masks the sounds, but they already have a, you know, a muffliato spell that does that. So it made me kind of second guess kind of what you were saying as well. Second guess the choice we'd made of choosing to be right next to this huge watery noise spell. (laughs) noise pool. (laughs) The other thing that struck me, I had a momentary, like a little jump into Ron's perspective was when Hermione gives them the extendable ears and she gives the first one to Harry and then to Ron. And just that sense of like, oh yeah, just another way in which I'm third choice. You know, it, it was just another tiny little moment, which I suddenly noticed this reading. The final thing I'll say, Vanessa, I don't know if this came to you as well, but the feeling, uh, this is me as Harry again, of hearing someone else say Accio Salmon 
you know, we're told in the text that like Hermione does all the cooking and Harry does all the fishing. And I can imagine Harry hearing Ted or whoever's voice it is say Accio Salmon and then Salmon appearing out of the river being like, oh, I didn't know you could use magic for fishing. (laughs) He's been standing out there for like hours, you know, trying to catch a a lonely individual fish. And here there's just some magic and there's like eight delicious salmon being ready for dinner and just feeling like really stupid. Like, oh, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, that's the other thing, right? Is like the relief that comes, it's not just that it's not Death Eaters, it's going to be the first new piece of information that's coming. Because I think it goes, the other thing for Hermione is that it goes from absolute fear to real excitement. And I know that this wasn't included in the part you read, but like how excited they are to hear Dean's voice. And it's like they are so starved for any new information for anything out of the ordinary. I feel like basically they're in quarantine with COVID and are just like, oh my God. Yeah, no, but to, to also just realize that the world is still out there, that it's still happening, right? That that their existence is not completely alone. And even just knowing that there's another group out there surviving, I yeah. feel like must give them a sense of hope, right? We're not the only ones. Other people are doing this too. There's a real sense of invisible camaraderie. Of course, it's one way, but once we know it's safe, that sense of relief and and companionship was really strong. Yeah. The other thing I'll say, because I think that this informs what we were talking about earlier, is that Hermione grabbing the extendable ears is again a way that she's taking care of the boys and is doing something for them that they could do for themselves. But the sense of satisfaction that I felt as Hermione of being able to be helpful, of being able to have some sort of power in a world in which I'm powerless, right? Like, I understand why she's tempted to like always be doing things like this. Yeah, and then she mouths to only Harry, goblins. Again, you know, just another moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, I I love this passage just because it's super multi-sensory language, but I feel like it's helped us understand just that dynamic, especially for Hermione even more so. And I'd never noticed that river. It's so interesting. That landscape just came alive to me in a whole new way. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Cindy. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana's, and everyone else on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. Um, My name is Cindy, and I just listened to your most recent episode on the theme of belonging. I would like to offer my own blessing for Hermione, but sort of also to people who are Hermione-related. In this chapter, in your podcast on it, I have found myself thinking a lot about her purple beaded bag and all of the stuff that's in it and all of the thought that she put into it, into packing it, into what she might need, into planning for this future that she doesn't even know when it's going to end. And it reminds me a lot of things in my past and in my present. I'm a military wife, and so every time my husband has left for a deployment, I have a deployment box that I keep packed with things for myself and our children that help us feel better while he's gone. Pictures, soft things, scented candles, special treats, that sort of thing. And when the pandemic started several months ago now, I took a deployment box sort of approach where we started stockpiling things to pull out on a rainy day. And I'm still packing that box. I'm packing that box, anticipating a New England winter in another shutdown. And the box is helpful, but the box is exhausting. Thinking about that, planning ahead, thinking about how I don't know when this is going to end. And in the meantime, it's, it's up to me and my husband. And that's pretty much it um, to keep our family afloat emotionally and spiritually and mentally So I want to offer a blessing to Hermione for doing that for the trio and to anyone else who is doing that right now for themselves, their roommates, their friends, their family, because it's exhausting work and we deserve blessings for it. So thank you very much for everything you do. I love the podcast. Sad it's, you know, we're at the last book, but really grateful. Thank you so much. Cindy, thank you so much for that voicemail. I'm going to say something that's going to sound so trite, but I mean it. You know, Hermione would still be the most useful thing on this trip, even if she didn't have her beaded bag. And you would still be a wonderful mom and wife if you didn't have this box. I don't want that box to be such a burden for you. I want you to know that, like, you're a wonderful mom and wife. And this winter is going to be horrible. I absolutely feel that too, living in New England. And we're not going to be able to meet friends outside from a distance. And we're not going to be able to live the lives that Hermione was able to live before the war. But 
also, she's enough without the beaded bag and you're enough without the box. But I love the box. It really made me teary-eyed. And just that experience of being a military spouse and even under those horrible situations, having that knowledge to create something like that. I've, I'm so touched by it, Cindy. And I'm also mad because like, as you said, you're having to figure that out as a family and all of us are having to figure it out on our own. And like, we're not on the run from a dark Lord. Like we shouldn't have to be dealing with this family by family. We should be dealing with this as a country, as a society. And there's just like zero leadership. And I can never forgive Trump for the way in which he has divided us in this moment, which should have been a time when we could be helping each other. So I really, I really appreciate your voicemail. Thank you. So Casper, we now each get to offer a blessing. Who would you like to offer a blessing for? I know we've talked about him a lot in this chapter, but I, I want to bless Ron because I feel like I have known that feeling of just wanting to give up and then going through with it and then maybe regretting it a little bit. And in this moment, all we see is Ron reaching his wit's end and doing what he thinks is the only option. As you said, you know, Harry asks it, well, why don't you leave? And that, and that's what he does. And so I guess this blessing is for, for Ron and for anyone who just feels like the only option is to give up. That may well be true. I don't know. I hope that none of us have to feel as alone in that giving up moment as Ron feels here. And I, I trust that just as Ron rediscovers that connection with Hermione and Harry, that all of us, if we feel like giving up, can reconnect with that love and friendship, even if it's just a little while away. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Ginny and Luna and Neville because <laughs> they go and steal the sword of Gryffindor. Yes. And it is just like a moment of rebellion and insurrection. They are being creative in their resistance. They are being so brave and so bold. And I'm just so proud of them. And I think that they are amazing. And I hope that they get statues when the war is over. They are keeping up the hopes of everyone at Hogwarts. And the news is getting out. So they are giving hope even to people on the lam. Yes. And especially when everyone is saying, as we hear from Dirk and Ted and Dean and, and the goblins, you know, there's no news about Harry, which they can interpret as good news. But here's a piece of actual resistance, which is getting out there that's inspiring people. Oh, I love that, Vanessa. Yes. They're just being so cool and brave. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our common room on Facebook to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or come and join the incredible community of people supporting us on Patreon. We're so, so grateful for your support. You can always leave us a review on iTunes. I read everyone and send us a voicemail. Stay tuned. September 1st, we are launching Witch, Please. And you can find the first episode right here in our feed, but you can also go hear it by subscribing to Witch, Please. Next week, we're reading Chapter 16, Godric's Hollow, through the theme of peace. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Cindy for this week's voicemail, Julia Argie, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. I, like,
like really don't understand the magic of their food problems. If you can multiply food when they have the bread and the eggs, why didn't they multiply it and then carry it with them? I don't understand why they don't just always go Akio eggs and like just get comfortable stealing a few eggs. I'm very unclear as to their food problems, especially after watching Akio salmon. Akio blueberries. I don't know. Akio dessert. Like, give me a full buffet to choose from, you know? <laughs> it, the food stuff is a real mystery. 